Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Old Testament, to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 34. Ezekiel 34. This morning, after the sermon, we will have the privilege of ordaining our brother Robert Gardner, or setting him apart for the task of pastoral ministry. Or to look at it another way, we are simply recognizing the work that God has already done to gift prepare, call, and now install to our congregation another shepherd. Historically, it's been our pattern to preach ordination sermons from 1 Timothy 3, specifically noting the qualifications of a pastor. Um, But I thought that's sometimes a little backwards. Those sermons ought to be preached before we vote on a man, not when we install him. Um, And so today I'm going to do something different. Our text in Ezekiel describes the shepherds of Israel. And therefore, there will be many clear applications to the shepherds of the church and pastors. But I encourage you, don't tune out if you're not a pastor. Each of us have shepherd-like aspects to our roles. Some of you are parents or grandparents. And you have a shepherd-like calling over your little flock at home. Maybe at work you have a group of people around you or under you to whom you have a shepherd-like influence. Children, young ones, maybe you have a younger sibling. There's a shepherd-like quality that you can have to your relationship with your younger sibling. Whatever our station, we can each learn something from true and false shepherds like the ones that were over Israel as we shall soon See, this is a large chapter, much larger than I normally preach, so that means much meat will be left on the bone. I won't be able to say everything, so your homework tonight, or maybe over lunch, is to talk about and maybe apply some of these things to yourselves in ways that I wasn't able to get to with such specificity. But let me pray, and then we will jump into our text. Father, we ask that you would feed us as only you can do. Feed us your word. Teach us more about Christ. Help it to be refreshing to our souls. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. By way of a setup to what may seem a very foreign book, Ezekiel is a prophet working at the point in Israel's history after the kingdom had been split. If you remember, there was a king named David. David had a son, Solomon, and under Solomon, the kingdom of Israel reaches its pinnacle, its its peak in terms of earthly influence and economic prosperity. But after Solomon, the kingdom splits between the north and the south, and eventually, because of their sin and their unwillingness to heed the word of God, those kingdoms were both conquered and taken off into exile. And it's during Ezekiel's life that the southern kingdom called Judah was defeated by Babylon and hauled off into exile. Ezekiel himself was part of that group that was carried off. He appears to have settled with a bunch of Jewish um, captives in Babylon. And the theme of exile is all over Ezekiel's book. And that's the context, the major context of where we are. But as we turn to chapter 34... The first ten verses, we'll see specifically that Israel's shepherds are on trial. That's my first point. Israel's shepherds are on trial. Look with me at verse 1. 
The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord your God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds be feeding the sheep? But you eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fat ones. But you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the straying you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought out, the, with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep are scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to seek or to search them out. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become prey and my sheep have become food for the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched them out but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. I will require my sheep at their hands and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall, they, shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they will not be food for them. And so this first section begins very bluntly with an indictment of the shepherds of Israel. Now remember, Israel in the Old Covenant was both a religious group and a political nation. So this category of shepherds of Israel would include both religious leaders, political leaders. This is priests, kings, Levites, magistrates. And even though the church today doesn't have the same union of political and religious leadership, the principles of this passage are easy enough for us to translate to, our, to ourselves. The shepherds were failing to do their job. What specifically was their crime? Well, for one, they were negligent. They were negligent of their duties. One of the primary, if not the primary responsibilities of a shepherd is to feed the sheep. Ezekiel says that at the end of verse 3. That's a given, but the shepherds were not doing that. They were negligent to see after the nourishment of the people under their care. And so the lesson, the question for us to ask ourselves is, if we've been negligent to see after the well-being of those under our care. Pastors must be faithful to feed the congregation. It must be a well-balanced diet. It must not be lopsided. Lean towards the pastor's personal hobby horses. It's one reason why Paul would tell Timothy to preach the whole counsel of God. Don't bang the same note all the time. Shepherds can be tempted to let the flock graze in particular places, maybe the pleasant places, maybe the fields that are easy to get into, the ones that aren't so muddy, the ones that aren't so overgrown. But that's not always what a flock needs. Sometimes sheep need meals that are more difficult to get to. They require more effort to attain. Same is true for congregations. If a pastor only teaches what goes down easy, then he is negligent. He's failing to give the sheep all of God's word, all that they need to grow into maturity. 
Similarly, we we could all ask ourselves, am I being faithful to feed those under my care with the diet that they need? Parents, are you faithful to feed your children? Husbands, are you giving to your wife what God would have them to eat? What nourishment comes from God's word? All of this requires that you know the sheep, what they need, because not all sheep are the same. We need to know what kinds of things they need to hear. Not every sheep needs the same diet. Some sheep need a lot of encouragement. Others need a firm hand. Some sheep need lots of attention. They're always getting in trouble. Others are kind of self-starters. They're more independent. A good shepherd will give to the flock his undivided attention. He will take note of the particular needs of each of his children, each of his workers, each of his sheep. And he will give the care and the food necessary for the well-being of each sheep. But, But the shepherds here are failing to do that. In fact, their sin is much worse much more sinister than neglecting to feed. Because as we see, they're eating. They weren't merely negligent. They were also cruel. They were cruel. Twice in this passage, they were condemned for feeding themselves on the sheep. They were called the shepherd. Rather than protecting the flock from predators, they themselves became the predators. They were the enemies of the flock. They were preying upon the vulnerable sheep, cruelly harming the very ones they were charged to protect. It is the opposite of what ought to be. The very opposite. They were gorging themselves while their sheep were starving. They were gorging themselves on the very starving sheep. See, in, in the house of God, shepherds can be tempted to turn their ministry... What ought to be a ministry of service into a ministry of self-service. Shepherds can be tempted to think that the sheep are really there to serve the shepherds. Isaiah talks about such an ungodly reversal. He says in chapter 56 that there are shepherds that have no understanding. They've each turned to their own way, each to his own gain. Similar to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6. He warns about the false teachers who desire to line their pockets by fleecing the flock of God. They, they turn, they, they have this desire to be rich, which is a snare, Paul says. It, it's led many into senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction because the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, Paul says. Wicked shepherds are not a new thing, are they? You can look on TV and you can see the people trying to scam the simple out of their money, saying, if you mail me a check, you'll be blessed. Those guys aren't new at all. They may have a bigger reach, a louder microphone, but they are the same as the shepherds condemned in our text should not be so with shepherds over God's flock. Contentment is what befits a true shepherd. Pastors ought not be chasing money or fame or ease or the praise of men or anything else other than faithfulness to the word of God. 
But such a temptation is not limited to those in the household of God. We can each be tempted to lead our home in such a way as to make the whole household revolve around us. That woman you gave me, God, she exists to serve me and my kingdom. Those children, they exist to honor me and respect me. And when I don't get that service, that honor and respect, wrath. Rule with force and harshness, he says at the end of verse 4. Husbands, does that sound familiar? When we do that, we turn the whole thing on its head. We act as though the sheep exist to bless the shepherd. Rather than the shepherd's job being to serve the well-being of the sheep. That's God's indictment of the shepherds here. They were negligent of their duty. They were failing to feed, failing to protect. They were acting cruelly towards the flock, eating them, scattering them. Preying upon the very ones they were called to protect. And so what's the verdict that God has for these shepherds? That's what he says in verse 10. Behold, I am against the shepherds. He doesn't simply say the shepherds are guilty. That's true. He doesn't simply say these shepherds are going to be deposed. They'll lose their jobs. That's true. He said, I am against them. Those that fatten themselves by consuming the very ones they were charged to protect, they will have God as their enemy. God, the eternal cosmic ruler, the just and vengeful king, he is the holy protector of his name and those made in his image, and he will put the full weight of his omnipotent hand on those who would dare to harm the flock placed under their care. That's the verdict. Pastors, shepherds, your ears better be up listening. Parents, leaders of any kind, older siblings, you should listen. Our callings come with responsibilities that are deep and profound and weighty, and we dare not neglect them. That's one reason why Hebrews 13 talks about pastors giving an account for their shepherding. God sees all and he knows all and he knows the disposition of our hearts. He knows that we can be tempted to turn things on their head and to make it all about me and my comfort rather than the well-being and the care of those that I was called to serve. And so as we all lead in our various capacities at, at home or at church or at work, we should reflect. Be sober-minded. Am I guilty of shepherding like these shepherds of Israel? Do, do I act as though... The flock exists for my gratification. Or does the flock exist for God's glorification through my sacrificial service to it? Do I possess the posture of a servant shepherd? Or am I deceived to think that my little flock exists to serve me and make me happy? Israel's shepherds stand condemned. But let's see what God does next. Let's look at verses 11 to 16 and we'll see the Lord's response to the shepherds. The Lord's response to the shepherds. Verse 11, for thus 
says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among the sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places that they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them in from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. And there they shall lie down in good grazing land. And on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. And I will bind up the injured. And I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. So in response to these ungodly shepherds, God says, enough. I'm going to take over. I will take over as the shepherd of Israel. And listen to all the actions that the Lord says. All of these great verbs in here. He says he's going to search. He's going to seek out. He's going to gather. He's going to rescue. He's going to feed. He's going to make them lie down. He's going to bring them back. He's going to bind them up. He's going to strengthen them. He's going to feed them. We can add to that list the promise that he will destroy and he will judge the evil, the evil doers. And so God's response must have been such a comfort to the oppressed sheep. Such a relief. God would come and he would take over. He would do what Israel's shepherds failed to do. He would make right all of the wrongs. He would judge the wicked oppressors and the hypocritical leaders. I wonder how many of you have ever felt like these helpless sheep, the sheep of Israel. Maybe you have felt exiled, alienated, estranged, fearful of the future, longing for a godly shepherd to watch over you. A shepherd that you didn't have to be on guard against, fearful that he might devour you at any moment. A shepherd who would only feed you what was good for you, who would protect you, who could bind you up, who could restore you when you were hurt, who could pick you up and strengthen you when you were weary. Doesn't a shepherd like that sound wonderful? The good news of Scripture is that the God of the Bible is that kind of shepherd. He is the Lord. He is the faithful shepherd. He, he shepherds with many glorious promises. To go back to Psalm 23. If the Lord is your shepherd, then you shall not want. That means you're not going to lack anything that you need. He already owns everything. Because he made it. And he's inclined to care for you. He delights in feeding to you. To give you everything that you need. He doesn't disdain sheep that need his care. He makes you lie down in green pastures. Even when you might not want to. How often do we think we know better? I'm going to graze over here. This looks green. We're supposed to be over here. 
His path for you is always aimed at pleasant and well-watered pastures. That means he's always aiming for your good even when you're not. He leads his sheep beside still waters, Scripture says, which means you can not only be refreshed by tasting them, you can have your soul restored in his presence. He'll lead you in paths of righteousness, which means he won't lead you astray. You don't have to wonder if the Lord's way is the right way. If he really knows where he's going, he's always right. He's always blameless. And if you're in the Lord's flock, you have nothing to fear, not even in the valley of the shadow of death, because God is with you. He will never abandon you. His comforting presence will never be far from you. And so secure is his protection as your shepherd that he can prepare a table for you in the presence of your enemies. It means the world and Satan are no match for his protection. Our shepherd has an all-powerful rod and an indestructible staff, both of which ensure our eternal security. And in the Lord's care, our head is anointed with oil, the text says, which is a symbol of health and favor and being set apart. And in Christ, we receive a similar anointing, the very peace of the Holy Spirit being set apart. And no worldly wolves or satanic shepherds can take away this sweetness from us. And so if these things are true, if the Lord will be our shepherd, then surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life because goodness and mercy are our Lord's stock and trade. He delights in being the shepherd of his people. And if shepherding is his delight, then the sheep shall dwell in his house forever. He won't reject his sheep. He doesn't grow weary of being a shepherd. That's who he is. He doesn't grow impatient or slack or careless. He's not resentful of his work. Can you imagine a better shepherd? I can't. Nothing is lacking from his pastoral care. And if that's the case, then doesn't that make you want to trust him? To trust yourself to him? Think deeply. Think often of this shepherd. Remember the promises of this shepherd found in scripture. He can bind you up when you feel broken by sin and trial. Only he can restore you when you've been mistreated. Only, only he can take care of you when you've wandered off into bad pastures again. And this offer stands for any of you today. It doesn't matter how much trouble, how far you've wandered astray. Scripture says that each one of us have gone astray. Every one of us have turned our own way. But the Lord is ready to forgive all that would come to him. Don't neglect to treasure the promises found here in the second point. Turn from your sin and believe in this Lord as your shepherd. It's the only way to receive lasting joy and satisfaction. Now let's turn to verses 17 to 21 and see the Lord's response to the sheep. The Lord's response to the sheep. You might have sat through this sermon so far and thought, well, I'm not a pastor or a leader, so none of this, response, none of this applies to me. Not so fast. God in the text turns his sights from the shepherds to the sinful sheep among the flock. Verse 17, as for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of the pasture? 
and to drink of clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet? And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you push with side and with shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. And so here God is making clear that it's not only the shepherds who are to blame in Israel. Some, indeed, many of the sheep were also blameworthy. God begins by saying he will judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and goats. That is, he will discern those that are acting right and those that aren't. He seems to specifically be calling out the rich and the influential, those that have power, called fat sheep, because they're sinning against the lean sheep. They were guilty of pushing aside the weak ones, thrusting the weak with their horns, scattering them abroad, the text says. God rebukes them. It's not enough that you get a drink. You've got to muck up everything else in the creek with your feet. But you're not content just to live to be fat, you have to help starve the weak. But this is often how life works, even in the household of God. Those who have power or influence or money can be wielded in a way that has disregard for the well-being of the rest of the flock. The New Testament addresses these things. 1 Timothy 6, James 5, for example, specifically warn the rich and the powerful to be humble, to not put their faith in wealth, but instead be rich in good works. But it's not merely those with more money that can be harmful to the flock. The New Testament also warns about the wicked who will teach false doctrine. Indeed, wicked shepherds who will rise up within the church and teach false doctrine. And if we believe the Bible, the New Testament, to be correct about congregational structure, that is, the congregation is the final authority to vote on leadership among the, the body, then we should note that sheep can also be guilty of harming their own flock by installing and retaining false teachers. You ever thought about that? That congregations of sheep who continue to enable false teachers will themselves be held to account for their toleration of unbiblical teaching. When we perpetuate false teaching, we become complicit in the negligence, just like the negligent shepherds who failed to feed the flock. We're serving to muck up the water and to tread down the pasture that would otherwise be feeding the flock. There are all, other, all sorts of other ways we can be guilty sheep as well. Failing to seek the well-being of the flock. When we fail to show compassion on another sheep in our flock that's in need, we've missed the mark. When we fail to pray for our flock, we've fallen short. When we sow seeds of division or dissension among the body, we're guilty of sinning against the flock of the Lord. 
any of this sounds familiar, then we need to know that the Lord is the shepherd and he sees it. This shepherd has never missed anything. And he will judge between the sheep. He'll separate the sheep from the goats and he will adjudicate accordingly. In fact, before we move on, it's worth mentioning a parallel passage. I don't have time to turn there in this sermon, but Zechariah 11 has a section that makes very clear an interesting dynamic. Let me ask you a question about what's going on in this passage in Ezekiel. Why is Israel in this mess? Specifically, why has the flock of God been hauled off into exile and given terrible shepherds? If God is all-powerful and he is good, how did bad shepherds get in charge of his people? It's a great question. The prophets, especially Zechariah, when we read them closely, teach us that the, the, the reason why God's flock is suffering under the weight of wicked shepherds is because the sheep had already rejected the Lord as their shepherd. That's a powerful dynamic. But it's seen throughout the Bible. When God wants to discipline his flock who are trying to reject him as shepherd, what he does is he gives them terrible shepherds. And why does the Lord feel the need to discipline his flock? Because he loves them and the sheep are rejecting him as their true shepherd. This cycle is all throughout the Old Testament. You read the book of Judges, for example. It happens all the time. And the same is true today. When a congregation decides to reject the Lord as their shepherd, they instead will seek out pastors who will feed them what their itching ears want to hear. And so what does God do? He disciplines that flock by giving them the desire of their heart, and they end up with worthless shepherds. So if that dynamic is at play, if that discipline is at work, what is the remedy? How can the people of God have any hope that things are going to get better? Let's look at the rest of the chapter and see what God's plan. Let's see the good news of God's plan. Good news of God's plan. Let's go back to verse 23, and here's where things get really fun. God says through Ezekiel, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them, and he shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be a prince among them. I am the Lord, and I have spoken. I will make with them a covenant of peace, and I will banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them as the places all around my hill a blessing. That's important. Remember that. And I will send down the showers in their season and the showers shall be blessing. And all the trees of the field shall yield their fruit and the earth shall yield its increase and they shall be secure in the land. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who has enslaved them. And they shall no more be prey to the nations, nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely, and none shall make them afraid. And I will provide for them renowned plantations, so that they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land, and no longer suffer the reproach of the nations. And they shall know that I am the Lord, that I am the Lord, their God with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. And you are my sheep, my human sheep of my pasture. And I am your God, declares the Lord God. 
And so God's plan to address the problem of both faulty shepherds and sinful sheep begins with another shepherd. Seems kind of strange. Didn't God already say before? We just read it that he's going to be their shepherd. If he's going to be their shepherd, how could there be another shepherd named David? Because God's not David. They're different. Ezekiel is taking several themes, several ribbons, several threads that are running through the Old Testament, and he's tying them together with a promise that comes in the New Covenant. This is good news. Think back to 2 Samuel 7. God made a covenant with the then king of Israel named David. He said, David, you think you're going to build me a house? You think you're going to build me a temple? No, you're not building me a house. I'm building you a house, David, and you're going to have a son, a lineage, a heritage, and he's going to be on the throne forever. David has a son, Solomon. His name, he's king. He doesn't rule forever. He blows it. So we have this promised son of David. This promise has been given And it's pictured, this promised son is pictured throughout the prophetical writings in very shepherd-like terms. Ezekiel is promising that God would provide a royal son of David who would be the shepherd over Israel. And we have these expectations building as we read through the Bible from cover to cover. God has made promises to his people. God began building this expectation in Genesis 3 when he promised that a son would come from Eve. And he would crush the head of the serpent. And later he promised a son to a guy named Abraham. And that son would be the one through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. And eventually David is promised a son, a royal son, who would sit on the throne forever. And so we have all this expectation, this building, building, building. How is God going to do all of this? The Old Testament ends. And it's unresolved. What's going to happen? And then you open to the first verse of the New Testament, the opening of the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew could have said anything to open his book, but he says something very specific. What does he say? He says, this book is a genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew is making a theological argument. He's not merely telling me who Jesus' family was. He could have described him as anything, but he calls him the son of David and the son of Abraham. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promised royal son who's going to sit on the throne of David forever. And Jesus is the promised son of Abraham through whom the world, the nations, would be blessed. What is God's plan for Israel? How is he going to resolve all this tension in Ezekiel 34? How is both God and a guy named David going to be the shepherd of Israel? Because in God's wonderful plan, there would be a Savior who would come who would be both Son of God and Son of Man. He would be both the Son of David's earthly lineage and the Son of God himself, fully God, fully man. That's how God and a guy named David could be the shepherd of Israel. That's how God and David could be a singular shepherd over the people. Because both God and the seed of David unite in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the promised shepherd. He's the one who will bind up. He's the one who will restore. He's the one who would protect and judge. He's the completion of all the messianic promises. And that's why that's why we can see from this promised plan that this Davidic servant would be a shepherd and he would provide a new covenant. 
the old covenant was playing out exactly how God said it would. He said, if you obey, you're going to have all these blessings. If you disobey, you're going to have these curses, and the land will spit you out. And so Ezekiel's telling the people that they're going into exile is just God doing what he told them he would do. But the problem wasn't the covenant. The problem was the hearts of the people. And so he says, I'm going to make a new covenant. We can read about this covenant in Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 31, Isaiah 54. But this covenant, this new covenant, comes with blessings, glorious blessings. Verse 25 promises safety for the people of God. Safety. You're not going to be in danger of being exiled every day because you've blown it again. What does safety look like? Paul describes it. He says, neither death nor life, nor angels or rulers, nor things present or things to come, no powers, nor height, nor debt, nor anything else in all of creation could separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's security. That comes in the new covenant. Verse 26 of our text promises blessing, showers of blessing, not a stingy trickle of blessing. And you have blessings if you're trusting in Christ as your good shepherd. That's why Paul can say in Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Did Paul have Ezekiel 34 in mind when he was writing that? Maybe. It's not untrue to connect those two texts. Verse 27 promises us fruitfulness. Trees bearing their fruit in season. The earth yielding its increase. This is language of the undoing of the curse. No longer thorns and thistles, but the earth offering up its bounty. And who can do that? Only the one who bore the very image of the curse, the crown of thorns on his head. Likewise, verse 27 and 28 promise us liberation or or freedom. He says he will break the bars of their yoke. The New Testament definitely pictures Christ as the great liberator, the emancipator. If the Son sets you free, then you are free indeed, Jesus says. Paul likewise says Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death, and our shepherd has freed us from the chains of slavery to sin and death, all of which who have bound souls of the sons of Adam since Genesis 3. Lastly, God's plan also promises adoption. We see that in the final verses where the covenant of peace not only frees us and restores us, but it goes even further. Verse 30, they shall know that I am the Lord their God and am with them and that they, the house of Israel, are my people. Here's perhaps the sweetest blessing of all. God doesn't simply save us. He makes us his own. He adopts us into his very household. We are his people, and he is our God. That's the good news of the new covenant. And these promises are for you if you trust in Christ. If you haven't yet believed, then today is the day that can be the day of your salvation. Trust in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who was sent to take away the sins of the flock. He will be your shepherd and your God, and you can be made one of his flock. 
This is the gospel message, the heart of every faithful shepherd, every father, mother, teacher, leader, especially every pastor in the church. This is the message they must have as their aim. It's to this office of pastor, shepherd, herald of the gospel, that we will now ordain our brother Robert Gardner. 